Good evening. If we haven't had the, the privilege to meet, my name is Naman. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and uh, it's my joy and uh, responsibility to preach through God's Word tonight. And as we land on a, a rather hard topic through the Westminster Story Catechism, uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to walk through this with you tonight as we do so. Uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, we've been going through a sermon series through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, where we've been going through one or two questions at a time, but rooting them in Scripture, where we find the truths and the orthodoxies of these questions and answers rooted in the Word of God. Um, and so before I read tonight's passage, I just wanted to also give a little context and background in it, because we're not going through an entire book where we're kind of going through the, the entire narrative or the epistle week by week. So we're just kind of just jumping into Acts 4 here. Before I read it, I wanted to give you a little context of what's going on before this passage. Prior to it, uh, we see the Apostle Peter and John uh, coming and healing a crippled man before the temple. Pentecost has happened. The apostles have received the Holy Spirit. And so on their way to the temple, they see this lame and crippled man in front who everybody knows that he has been lame from birth. Uh, he's about 40 years old. So this guy has been there almost his entire life, and they know him as the crippled one. Uh, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter and John heal this man, and they bring him into the temple. A wonderful, amazing miracle that happens. Shortly after that, people are hearing about it. There, there's a ton of chatter, commotion going on, even to the point where people are coming to believe Jesus, coming to believe God. And so the, the Jewish leaders and the chief priests, they're getting wild up about this. They feel threatened by it. So they bring them, Peter and John, before the council to testify for their quote-unquote crime. Uh, but by the end of that council, the, the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, they find that they can pin nothing on them. That there's no guilt that they can place. There's no punishment that they can enact upon them. So they have no choice but to let them go. But before letting them go, the council says, and they threaten them, preach no more. Don't do anything of the sort uh, that you haven't already done, uh, or else their lives are in danger. So this is the context that we find Peter and John. So let's look at the word of God tonight. From Acts chapter 4, <clears throat> starting in verse 23. When they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who, come, who through the mouth of our father David said, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. So there you have it. Peter and John have, have just been threatened by the council, and, and this narrative shows us what they did. And I want to ask us a question. Have you ever found yourself in a time or a point of crisis? Maybe you're currently in a period of crisis right now. I don't ask that flippantly or just to throw that out there because I know there are some of us in this room right now that are sitting in the midst of one of the hardest trials of your life. How do you respond in the time of crisis? How did Peter and John respond in the time of their crisis where their lives were threatened, where their lives were at stake? And so that's what I want to walk us through in this passage tonight is how do they respond in crisis, and we'll see three things from their response. We'll see humility, we'll see truth, and we'll see boldness. How do we respond in crisis? Humility, truth, and boldness. First, we'll look again at verses 23 to 24, if you'll read again with me. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And we'll pause right there. How do Peter and John respond to crisis? Peter and John, they come back from being confronted and having, having their lives threatened by the council. Uh, and their first response is prayer. They go back to their friends, like the other apostles or those in their worshiping community, and they begin praying. Now this is remarkable because... There's no boasting of the miracle that they just performed of healing this lame beggar who was 40 years old and crippled his entire life. There was no chatter or, or commotion of the close call they just had with the council. They had a death sentence almost placed on them, but they were able to walk away scot free. No, their response was prayer. They respond in prayer because they know that they are not in control. And they depend on somebody else. This is the display of the utmost humility. Or if we were to phrase it in the ways that Pastor Lance phrased humility this morning, if humility is putting someone else's interests ahead of our own, they begin placing God's interests and his plan ahead of their own. They show humility and they are turned immediately to prayer. Commentators have noted that this is the longest recorded prayer in the book of Acts. And, that, and that's pretty remarkable because a ton of things happen in the book of Acts. Right? But rightfully so, this is the first crisis, this is the first um, big opposition that these apostles are encountering because their lives are at stake. How do we respond to crisis? Is our first step to move towards God? Do we truly depend on him? Or, much like living in this modern age, as I'm sure was uh, tempting back then, do we kind of muster our own strength? Do we live in a culture that says, get your own help. Self-help is the way to go. There's almost this negative stigma of depending on somebody else. Uh, being a father of, of two young children, uh, my daughter is three years old and, and my son just turned five months, I have a pretty clear and practical picture of what dependence looks like, right? I can't leave the house without 
tying their shoes or putting on their clothes for them. Sarah and I have to get up at least once or twice a night to feed again. Like their, their entire lives revolve around their utter dependence on mom and dad. And again, sometimes we, in this culture as we live today, we see dependence as, as a bad thing, as almost a weak thing. Like why do you have to depend on somebody else? There are so many resources at your hand that you can do to pick yourselves up and just power through. But the picture of what we see Peter and John doing, this, this display of humility, shows us that dependence is not only a good thing, it's the necessary thing. That if we were to place the interests of God before our own, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of crises, even in the face of death, that we turn to God. So what does it look like to have this childlike faith? What does it look like to have this type of dependence? Now their humility continues not just in the fact that they prayed, uh, but how they prayed. It says, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord is a common phrase and a a term in which to address God in the Old Testament. And they acknowledge he was the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They're acknowledging that God is the creator of the universe. How does God carry out his decrees? God carries out his decrees in his works of creation because he is the creator of the universe. So when we're faced with crises, who better than to turn to than the creator of the universe, the sovereign Lord? Humility through prayer. And so as we think about that for ourselves, as we think about our own humility or, or lack thereof, maybe a, a proper gauge for humility is then to ask, what does our prayer life look like? Prayer as a, as a practical means of living out our faith, where our default to all of life's circumstances, whether good or bad, is to step toward God. As one commentator says, without prayer, we are practical atheists. That if we don't turn to God in prayer, as we try to chuck through life by just powering through or white-knuckling it or whatever phrase you want to put it, is if we don't live life in prayer depending on God, Do we believe that God actually works? Do we believe that God actually exists? Without prayer, we are practical atheists. So what would it look like to depend on God like this? But also, secondly, what would it look like to be in a community that defaults to prayer like this? What would it look like to be a church that is this humble, that turns to God in prayer? Now, I don't mean that as a, as a, as a word of condemnation because the, the first person that I point that to is myself. As I, as I was reflecting on this passage, as I, was, as I was moved by this picture of humility, I'm convicted of my own need and lack of, of prayer in my own life. Ways in which we are so humble to know that, God, I am your son, I am your daughter, I am your child. And to know that you are the creator of the universe, but also our heavenly loving Father who cares for us why wouldn't we turn to God in prayer? If we truly depend on God with childlike faith, how much more would our prayer lives be invigorated? Uh, I, I say all that, and, and I make this 
shameless plug, I'll make Jim is here tonight, but uh, to say that we, we have a resource practically available to you. We'll have a, a Praying Life seminar in, in early January, uh, January 10th or 11th to, to be precise. Uh, and, and that's just a really great resource that we can, as a church and as a community, practically be involved in and, and learn from and glean from to know how do, how do we invigorate our prayer lives? How do we kind of awaken this humility that God is calling us to if we believe that he is the one who eternally decreed everything that's already happened? Amen? Uh, so as we move to uh, the next part of the response they have is, is truth. And so I'll ask us to, to go back to the passage and we'll, I'll read, start from verse 25 as we continue in the prayer. Who through the mouth of, the, of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And we'll stop there. Uh, Peter and John and, and their friends are praying, and they end up quoting this, this psalm, Psalm 2, which is a part of our, uh, our call to confession this evening. Uh, and David, in this, in this psalm, um, is questioning why, why are the Gentiles raging? Why are the peoples plotting in vain? Why are the kings of the earth plotting against God? Like they, they're doing that in vain. And as they're quoting this psalm, they realize that this is a, a psalm that is a prophecy that has already been fulfilled. That as they read this, the Gentiles and the peoples equate to the Gentiles and the people of Israel in their contemporary time. That the kings of the earth is, is Herod. That the rulers are, is, is Pontius Pilate. And his anointed is the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. So that this psalm was prophesying something that would happen, but in the time of these apostles, it has already happened, it has already been fulfilled. The persecution of Jesus prophesied and fulfilled the evil, the rejection, the injustice, the beating, the mockery, the crucifixion. It's happened. But what's also surprising in the way that they bring this up, they frame uh, this narrative, uh, is that these elements, these things, were prophesied uh, to have been foreordained by God himself. That God planned for this to happen. Whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And that's exactly what we see in the question, the Westminster Catechism question number seven that we read. What are, what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will by which, for his own glory, he has foreordained everything that ever happens. And so as we, as we think about this, I'm sure this is a topic, this is a phrase, a hot topic that has caused you to pause at some point in your life, some point in your faith journey, whether for yourself, whether for somebody else that you knew that had a hard time reconciling this. Did God predestine everything? Literally everything. Or do we have our own free will? The angel predestination question. 
Is it divine sovereignty or is it human responsibility? And uh, to quote my old seminary professor, and not to put the responsibility on myself, uh, is it divine sovereignty or is it human responsibility? The answer is yes. The cop-out answer, right? Is it divine sovereignty? Is it predestination? Or is it free will? Is it human responsibility? And the answer is yes. And I, and I want to turn to us also in Scripture to, to see where that lands. First, in the narrative of Joseph. We all know the narrative of Joseph. He had... 11 other brothers uh, that were jealous of him because their father favored Joseph. And so his brothers ultimately led to, to beat him and then cast him into a pit and to be sold into slavery and to leave him for dead. But Joseph is found and he is brought and he is ultimately led up into the courts of Egypt to be in one of the highest positions imaginable. And ironically, when, when Joseph's brothers uh, are going through this famine, they are led to go to Egypt to ask for aid, to ask for food, to ask for help. And they are confronted by Joseph, whom they don't even recognize to begin with. And at the end of Genesis chapter 50, it says, Joseph said to them, his brothers, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Another example that we have in Scripture is, is Pharaoh in Egypt immediately after the book, the book of Exodus. Um, as, as the Israelites are in slavery, Moses comes and he says, God has sent me and he wants you to set his people free. And Pharaoh's response, as we know, is, is no. No way. And in Exodus 9, 12, it says, but the Lord pardoned the heart of Pharaoh. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Is it divine sovereignty or is it human responsibility? Yes. It's both that God has foreordained his predestined everything to happen. And through some mystery of God that we are still able to enact with our own free will. It doesn't mean that we are place all the onus and responsibility and guilt on God for everything bad that happens. Human responsibility is still at play. Even as we see in this passage, the evil, the rejection, the injustice, the, the mockery, the beating, the crucifixion of Jesus is carried out by individual men. And they will have to answer for their sins, their actions. But the key phrase to note here is that the people plot in vain. That regardless of what they were trying to do to Jesus, God's eternal decrees said that through him the world would experience salvation. His will prevails. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of pause there with, with the theological abstract uh, and say that predestination is more than just theology, but it's, I want to say it's grace applied to us even practically. More than just this abstract concept to adhere to or, or to be labeled, if we believe it, as, as the frozen chosen, uh, but it's graced received. If you were to look in your uh, the front page of your bulletin, I, I put a quote in there by G.K. Chesterton. It says, poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Reason seeks to cross the infinite sea and so make it finite. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens, 
It is a logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it is his head that's pleased. So the, the, the picture that we have there is that those who seek to understand the doctrine of predestination and election and foreordination for the sake of purely logical reasons are trying to fit the mysteries of God and the entirety of heaven into their heads. But as human beings, as those created in the image of God, as, as those subject to the creator, we are actually called to lift our heads into the clouds and enjoy the goodness of God. That as we, as we ponder this doctrination, this doctrine that, that God had predestined everything, we actually cannot separate it from what the Peter and John and, and their friends are referencing here. We cannot separate predestination from the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. Election is the means by which we are saved. We cannot separate foreordination with the reality that God sent his son to death for our sins. That if we have trouble trying to reconcile this image of, of God as this abstract arbiter of, of things and, and uh, saving some and saving not others, we also have to reconcile the reality that he sent his own, one and only son to die for us. So that oftentimes predestination is viewed, viewed as this cold and arbitrary nature of God that causes evil and sends people to hell. But if we begin to think of creation in conjunction with Christ's death and resurrection, we begin to see a bigger picture of God's lavish and providential care for us. That without Christ, there was no salvation. God is the one who saves, and he does so by foreordaining everything by decreeing it as such. And so if we were to take this, previous, this doctrine of predestination and actually throw it out the window, let's say that God did not decree anything. That it was all human responsibility and all free will. What if we knew then that the status of our standing with God depended on the quality of our own lives? Think about that. What if the status of your life, what if the, your salvation as, a, as it pertains to God depended, depended on how you lived your life and how that was measured? Sin says that even on our best day, we fall short. Even on our best day, we fall short. But if we begin to put God's decrees that the crucifixion of Christ back into the picture, salvation says... Even on our worst day, we are received. I was so moved by our presentary yesterday, as Pastor Lance was sharing. Even on our worst day, we are received. God does not judge us by our worst sins. If you think about the worst thought that you've ever had, the worst deed that you've ever done, then God's still coming to embrace you, to love you. Uh, another area in which people tend to have a hard time reconciling predestination uh, is just by throwing out this pat phrase of God has a plan for everything. There's a reason that things are happening. Uh, and I will confess that sometimes I've said it, sometimes I've heard it said to me, and particularly in those who are experiencing crisis or a moment of difficulty and trial in your life, that may be one of the worst things that you can say 
It may be theologically true, but when you're not there embracing that person, knowing or even trying to empathize the hurt and the pain and the fear and the doubt that is going in their life, a very arbitrary statement like God has a plan for everything can fall on deaf ears and can actually do more harm than good. Um, I know social media usually gets a bad rap a lot of the times, and, and I have kind of a personal bias about it, but uh, Sarah, was my wife, was flipping through Instagram yesterday, and she was looking through some stories, and she came across a mother um, who her young daughter, I think she was, she was maybe six or seven, uh, was playing with her friend, and, and they, were, they happened to be playing on a golf cart, and there's just some nonchalant, it wasn't even like this huge accident, the, the golf cart happened to tip over, and her daughter fell off of it, but it didn't seem like a, a tremendously bad fall. Uh, but what happened is that her daughter fell unconscious, unconscious, and she was in sort of a vegetative state for a while. She was in a coma for a couple of weeks. And when she came out of it, it seemed like she had lost all mobility, all sense of, of speech, of, of just being a normal kid anymore. And so as this mother was, was sharing she was pouring her heart out. You can imagine the grief and the crisis and the pain that she must have been going through. Uh, I, was, I was encouraged to know that she was a Christian woman and a lot of the things that she was saying was she was just reflecting on um, where God was in, in her life at that moment. And she was reflecting on even the, the, the knack for social media to, to have this post and a picture that was curated to say, I've been through this hard time but now God has delivered me. But in her story, in what she was recording of herself talking, she was saying, I'm trying to, to give a picture of what it looks like in the middle, right? And so from, from not just the before and after shot, but what happens in the middle, the, the emotions, the thoughts that you feel. And one of the things that she said that was so poignant, it's, it's still sticking to me right now, was she said, I know that God has a plan for everything. I know that he is good, and I know that he is sovereign. But I, I don't feel it. I know that God says he is near, but he feels far away. And so oftentimes when it comes to trying to wrap our heads around this doctrine of predestination or forward-nation, uh, we come to a head, especially when we go, we go through the hard points of life. That this is where theology tends to fall apart. But if we are constantly seeing ourselves under the word, if we are constantly humble enough to be in a community that wants to say, God, we want to trust in you, slowly that theology becomes more than knowledge, it becomes our identity. It becomes who we are. So that when we are faced with the hard trials of life, the truth that God foreordained everything is not just a mere theological truth, but it's a part of who we are because we cannot separate that from the truth that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, to restore all things. That in the hardest moments of life, we see a picture of a father who would let his one and only son die for us. So we may not have all the answers, even the pastors might not have all the answers, as to why you're going through what you're going through. But we know that there is a God who can empathize with that pain and has not left us in that darkness. 
But he shows us a way in which not only is there a plan for us in the future, but that God is near. It's okay to, to feel like he's not. I know that our human emotions tend to, to gravitate us towards that way, but God is near even though he may not feel like it because he shows us that through his son, Jesus. Uh, we can spend so much more on, on this topic and, and I'll reserve any questions or thoughts that you may have with, with Grill, to, Grill the Preacher afterwards. But I want to wrap us up with this last response that we see from the apostles is this response of boldness. Boldness. I'll read for us starting in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As we see their prayer continue, as we see their practical application of predestination and foreordination of God's decrees further, we see that they pray for the renewal work would continue through healings, through signs and wonders. And that's something of note because Peter and John aren't praying, God protect us. God deliver us. God save our lives from this threat. But they're actually praying, God keep doing the work that you're doing. And use us, embolden us to be a part of that work. They have no regard for their own safety or for their own lives. With an eye and thought towards God's sovereignty, Peter and John prayed for confidence. This whole episode with the council of the Sanhedrin was because of a miracle that they had performed on the lame man. And that didn't deliver them, that didn't save them, that didn't protect them. It actually provoked the chief priests to, to have them in their crosshairs. They asked for more signs, which would actually guarantee more persecution for the church. But signs that did not point to themselves, but signs that pointed to the power and the saving works of, work of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. Signs that were undergirded by the truth and the word of God, that God decreed everything to care for us, and that they would be bold enough to proclaim that very word. So the power of the Holy Spirit comes. Peter and John and their friends and their community, knowing that God is the creator of the universe who sustains all things, knowing that God foreordained everything to come that came to pass, they were given the power of the Holy Spirit to speak boldly the word of God in the face of persecution, in the face of death. This phrase here, filled with the Spirit, is only used a handful of time in the book of Acts. Acts 2, obviously, when, when the Spirit actually comes at Pentecost, Acts 4, just prior to this uh, passage here, when, when Peter is speaking to the Sanhedrin. Acts 9, in Saul's conversion, the Apostle Paul. And Acts 13, where, where Saul is at Antioch, and he almost transitioned from being called Saul to, to Paul. And so that any time the Apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit, God was doing something amazing. So that their ability to grasp that God was with them, God was in their midst, that he was the creator of the universe, that he had forwarded everything to come to pass, they were then filled with the Holy Spirit. And why not? Knowing that God, that God is the God of the universe and foreordained all things with their goodness in mind, 
who would sacrifice his one and only son that we might be reconciled with him, how much more would they be emboldened and have the confidence to move forward and proclaim that very word of God? Believing in God's good, eternal decrees allows us to be filled with the Holy Spirit with both utter humility and boldness as we pray to God, as we uh, do His reconciling work, and as we go forth in confidence. So I ask us, is this doctrine of predestination of foreordination still a stumbling block for us? And it's okay if it is. I ask, I invite you to ask those hard questions. That's what we're here for. But can we begin to see the picture of, of election or predestination in conjunction with the reality that Christ would, would that God would send Jesus, his one and only son, for us, so that we might be saved, so that we might turn to him as our default, so that we might be filled with the Spirit, so that we can partake in this genuine reconciling work that he's doing in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Amen? Let's pray.